Well, uh, I'm very excited to welcome Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb today. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for making some time. I know life is very busy right now. Yeah, thank you for having me today. It's an exciting Absolutely. time. Absolutely. So I think everyone who listens to this is probably pretty familiar with Airbnb. Um, it's one of our favorite ways to travel, to be perfectly honest. We have four kids and it's it's nice to not be stuck in a hotel sometimes when we go places. Yeah, so totally. big fan. I want to start, you posted a Twitter feed or a Twitter thread recently, and you were talking about some changes that you guys made in terms of allowing people to kind of work anywhere. And I was, I wrote about part of it, which kind of wish that when I was working for com big companies had this where they could live anywhere and you weren't going to change their pay. And that kind of got a lot of the attention, but there was something else you said that I want to kind of start with. And you said, despite everything, we had the most productive two-year period in our history. While it's been an incredible two years for Airbnb, I know it's been hard on many of you. And I kind of have two questions. And so we'll sort of tackle them one at a time. The first is obviously the beginning of 2020 was a very rough time for everybody. You shared publicly an email that you sent to your team almost exactly two years ago. It was like May 5th, announcing yeah. that you had to lay off 1900 employees. So the first thing I would love to just kind of hear from you is what what was your strategy that helped Airbnb in terms of the decisions you made as well as the way your team responded that went from that to the most productive period in your history? It's a great question. Um, you know, yeah, I, um, I feel like I'm 40 going on 50 or 60 years old after the last two years. Um, we probably, hard to know, but it feels like we maybe got five or 10 years of productivity out of the last two years. Hard to know, it's a little bit of a guess. So what happened? Well, the first thing that happened is um, we lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. And when you lose 80% of your business in eight weeks and you're the size of Airbnb and we were doing like, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year in bookings, it's kind of like an 18 wheeler on a highway going 80 miles an hour and hitting the brakes really quickly. It, it's very dangerous and it, it's traumatic. And it was traumatic for a lot of people. Um, and I have luckily never had a near death experience in my life, although I've heard it described as you kind of like stare into the abyss, your life flashes before your eyes, and sometimes you get clarity. And though I've never had that, luckily, I certainly had what felt like a near-death business experience. And we never got close to business death, but we didn't know we, we didn't know because we didn't know that 80% wasn't going to be 99%. And we didn't know how long it was going to go down for. And the first thing that I think happened, how do we do it? I'll just give you the short answer. Um, the day, uh, I remember it was the Ides of March, May 15th. I called a very special board meeting. At the end of the board meeting, one of my board members, who was the former CEO of Amex, who's been through a lot of crisis, 9-11-2008, he called me and said, this is your defining moment as a CEO. And that really um, kind of, that resonated with me. It, it kind of reminded me of the responsibility I have and that this company can go a lot of directions. And I think we went in crisis mode. It was all hands on deck. We got 1,000 people in the foxhole. And the, what we did is, number one, we decided to focus. You know, I remember when I was at RISD, I had a teacher who said, Brian, you can do everything you want in your life, just not at the same time. Well, when you're 26 and your parents like me are social, my parents are social workers and you have all the success, you tend to think you can do anything and sometimes all at the same time. And I think that we in tech sometimes try to pursue too many things at once. And suddenly I couldn't afford to do everything. And so we had to focus. We had to unfortunately lay off nearly 2000 people. And not only that, we had to shutter most of our new things. So we basically went back to what you know as Airbnb homes with some experiences. That was it. We, 
paused everything. We went back to a functional organization. I actually studied the company that seemed to be most closely in perilous situation to ours, and that was Apple in 1997. Steve Jobs comes back to Apple. They're 90 days from bankruptcy. He shutters most of their units. He does a layoff, uh, but he also goes to a functional organization. And he gets back to the magic, back to the Mac. And we went back to our roots, back to everyday people hosting their homes. I got really into details of every part of the business. And basically, with our core team, we rebuilt the company from the ground up. We basically stopped spending money on marketing and learned that our brand was stronger than we ever imagined. And this, of course, helped accelerate our business. I did hundreds of press interviews. We got a million articles about Airbnb. We improved our cost structure. We put our very best people on the most important problems at Airbnb, and we radically improved our product. Um, you know, we made 150 upgrades, for example, just last year alone to our product. This doesn't even include the stuff that we're doing now, which is the biggest change for me in a decade. And I just think maybe the other thing I'll just say is we never lost that pace. There was an eight-week period where we thought, you know, we could lose a lot, you know, everything we built. And so, but when the crisis kind of ended, or at least that we got out of the, the clear, we never let off the gas. I said, you know, we're not going to step off the gas. And we stayed like pedal to the metal. And that's probably why we had 10 years of productivity. I also do think Zoom and remote work is more efficient. I mean, it's, un, it's undeniable to say technology and digitization is more efficient than in-person interactions. Now, in-person interactions are very meaningful and they build trust, but you don't need to necessarily do that every moment of every day. And so I think that we just figured out how to work remotely. We figured out how to move quickly and we rebuilt the company into something much better than before the crisis. Yeah. And I think Airbnb, as much as any company, has a very interesting perspective on this because not only are you leading a company that's wrestled with how to do that type of thing internally, right? For your own people, but you also see how people are using your product to do that. And it's in, in maybe three years ago, people would have mostly thought of Airbnb as a way to book a vacation. That's, that's not the case anymore. And so I'm curious, like, what have you guys, what have you learned from those two things together, right? How your own company is handling it for your people as well as how people are using the product? Yeah, I, I would say it's a great question, Jason. And, and I would say, um, I, I took a three things I'll point out. Number one, we looked at our own data. Half of our business by night's book now are for stays of longer than a week. And, you know, for the average person, they can't afford to stay in a hotel for more than a week. It's just cost prohibitive. So it's not even really a classic use case for hotels. It's really the edge of hotels is up to seven days. A fifth of our business is not even travel. A fifth of our business by night's booked and growing, our fastest growing segment is longer than a month. And I predict that five years from now, it's going to be a lot more than 20% of our business. I can't know for sure, but the all trends suggest that's going to happen. So the first thing is we had as much data as anybody because when all these people were working remotely, they were living on Airbnb and we had that data and we just had a real feel for it. So that's number one. The second thing is I just saw how our own employees were working and I just realized that like remote work is actually really effective. Now, I, I wrote in my tweet storm that, you know, it doesn't, I do think you need to combine it with meaningful in-person interaction, but we'll get back to that in a second. But we were just more productive. And, you know, I would have never thought we'd be productive, but actually it turns out that like in a crisis, you know, like, you know, when you remove all the logistics, um, it's just a lot more efficient. But the third thing is, you know, I, I have a, you know, a lot of people when they were trying to predict like return to work policies, everyone was focused on these big companies and kind of older companies. 
And I think that if you want to predict the future, you shouldn't look at older people or older companies. You should probably look at younger people and younger companies because those often become the habits of the future. And just to give you one example, 20 years ago, Silicon Valley popularized the open floor plan. It popularized on-site perks. It wasn't the older companies. It was the young companies, the little startups. And the culture of the young startups became the predominant culture of companies all over the world. And as I look to the culture of startups today, though they're not all virtual, they embrace virtual work a lot more than the bigger, older companies. And so while everyone's trying to tabulate what giant Fortune 500 companies are doing, we were looking at young companies and the data was indisputable. They are all embracing flexibility, virtual work, remote work. And then I, the last thing is I just went to first principles. The first principle is the following. The best people don't live in New York. They don't live in San Francisco. The best people live everywhere. And some of them are in New York and San Francisco, but they're really everywhere. And so as a hirer, as a CEO, I have to make a calculation. <clears throat> if I limit my talent pool to a radius near my office, does the increase in productivity of them being near my office overcome the lack of talent or the limit of the pool I can hire? In other words, if I can hire someone in Ohio and they're twice as good, that means the person near me has to be twice as productive. Otherwise, I'm at a net loss. And in fact, it's not even clear they're even more productive in the first place. And so all these reasons, I mean, just first principle thinking showed me that all the data proved that we should be embracing flexibility and remote work. But the last thing I'll just say, and then I'll wrap this thought up, is I also don't believe in a world that's purely digital. I mean, I don't know if you ever move, remember that movie WALL-E, the Pixar movie WALL-E, where everyone's staring at screens mm -hmm. all day. I don't think we should only stare at screens. I think screens are in our future. We're going to live more and more digitally. But it takes a lot longer to trust somebody if you've never met them in real life. And there are some interactions that are spontaneous. You know, you just you don't bump into people and you can't have impromptu conversations on Zoom as easily. But so, so what a lot of people did is they created this thing called hybrid. And their hybrid was two days a week, three days a week in the office, which kind of doesn't give you a lot more flexibility in the old world. <clears throat> and I'm not sure. So, so I thought maybe there was a different form of hybrid. Maybe instead of asking you to come in three days a week, which I don't think will work, because I think three days a week will become two days a week, two days a week will become one day a week. And then everyone comes in the office a different one day a week, unless they all coordinate that like Wednesdays or meeting days in the office. And so I thought maybe there was a different form of hybrid where we combine the efficiency of Zoom with the infrequency, but the meaningfulness of in-person interaction by getting together, call it one week a quarter. And frankly, if that's not enough, we can adjust it. And that was what we landed on. And we allowed, then, we, then the last thing we did is we took on all the administrative burden to say, you can live in 170 different countries. Now, almost no company in the world does this. And the reason no company does this is because the HR departments and the legal departments and the finance departments don't want to do all the extra work. And I thought, well, if there was one company that has a reason to do extra work, it's us. Like, if we can solve this for Airbnb, let's open source this. Obviously, it's to our benefit, but it's also probably to everyone's benefit to give them more flexibility. And then the last thing was location-based pay. If I live in San Francisco and I move to Ohio, should I lower your pay? And I thought maybe location-based pay on a per-country basis still makes sense, but people don't even live in one place necessarily. Like I'll give you an example. I have a bunch of employees that move away for the summer. So like an employee will go to Maine for the summer. Am I going to lower their paychecks for June, July, and August because they went to Maine for three months and then increase their salary and go back to San Francisco? It started feeling a little bit outdated. And so when I just like went bottoms up with first principles, that's how we landed on this policy. And I think my prediction, I might be wrong, but I think this 
will be closer to how people work 10 years from now than this so-called hybrid or even 100% remote where you never see anyone. Yeah. And, and I, I, I like that you point that out because I, I remember reading recently a, uh, quote from Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, talking about how he doesn't think hybrid work is going to work, but it was for a very different reason. He just thinks he's, he called himself a traditionalist and said everyone should be back in the office. And that does, sometimes I think there are people who are working at companies that have implemented sort of a hybrid work and it sort of feels like bait and switch. It's like, okay, well, we know we can't get you to all come back today, so we're going to do this, but eventually we're just going to get everybody back. But you guys have taken like the exact opposite mode there. And I, and I, I think that that's compelling for a lot of people because just like Google sort of set the stage for the way every Silicon Valley and, and actually not just Silicon Valley companies did the workplace. Now, Airbnb is sort of leading the way that maybe companies will do that in the future. But I do have a question. So we can argue, not you and me, but we can argue about the future of work. And you, you seem pretty sold on the idea that it involves a much greater degree of dispersion of your workforce. But over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of companies that looked at what was happening during the pandemic as sort of a pull forward of trends or demand only to be proven pretty wrong. Peloton is maybe the best example where they they built all these bikes and then they ended up with a warehouse, warehouse full of them as people realized they could go back outside. And it's, but it's not just companies like that. Netflix had the same thing happen. Even Amazon admitted that they kind of grew too big, too fast for whatever the new normal looks like. And I'm curious how you are looking at whether this is just a shift as opposed to a fad, right? Like, is this an actual we're moving in this direction or is this just a thing that we're going to do as the next phase of post COVID or, you know, is this going to be a permanent and how do you know? It's a great question. Um, you can't know for sure. The only thing you can do is just kind of build a case based on, I think, like data and first principles. So let me, let me make a couple observations. Number one, most of the people saying that they want everyone back to the office are over 50. Like there's just a demographic thing. Like the older you are, the more inclined you are to quote, be uncomfortable with the idea of flexibility and digitization. I understand that. It's a generational thing, I think. You don't hear a lot of people under 30 saying that. Um, so that's the first point. The second point is you're right. Like we have to look at which trends are temporary pull forward trends versus enduring trends. So I think the enduring trends are the things that, um, well, okay, let's back up. We've had a lot of employees that when the pandemic occurred, they just left San Francisco and they moved to X, Y, or Z city. And I don't think they thought that it was a temporary thing. <laughs> like that, I think they, like maybe they would have, maybe I could have forced them back to San Francisco and I think a bunch would have come back and I think a bunch would have quit. But I think that like, I, here's the problem employers think they can tell employees where to work. And I think they're wrong about that. I think employees, not employers, will determine the future workplace because I think flexibility is like a genie that's out of the bottle. Once you have flexibility, how do you let go of it? And so I think employees will dictate the future because flexibility will be the most important benefit after compensation. And what we're really saying isn't that people will or will not go back to the office. What we're really saying is everyone going to be concentrated in Silicon Valley. Is everyone going to be concentrated in New York? Is everyone going to be concentrated in Austin? I'm kind of speaking tech hubs right now, but this is a metaphor for everything. Yep. Or will people yep. be more dispersed? And I think the bigger question is population redistribution. Will people continue to stay redistributed or they, will they recongregate back to cities? All I know is this is the worst technology will ever be in our lifetime. Cameras will improve. Satellite internet is going to improve. 
5G will replace by even faster internet. Um, screens will improve. And so the digital experience will continue to get better. And so I think the bar to haul people back to the office gets higher each year as the digital experience improves. And again, if I could just lean on only one data point, we were more effective for two years being remote than the 12 years before that. And so if I'm just going on my own data, my own data suggests that like this isn't a trend, this is here to stay. Yeah, and I, and you're not and Airbnb is not the only company that has pointed that out. I've talked to a lot of managers and leaders of companies who are saying the exact same thing, and a lot of them are much smaller than Airbnb, right? Yeah. Most of the yeah. most of our audience are small businesses, and they're saying we we had to figure this out, and part of it was like we had to do this to survive, but part of it was like this is actually better, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it, I, yeah, I, and we're not going back to 2019 anymore. We're going back to 1950, like. I know it seems like 2019 wasn't that long ago, and maybe we can all just kind of forget this like it was a bad dream, but it, it's, it, it, but, but, but you're not going back. You can't go back two years, any years, in the 50 years. Like you just, you only go forwards. And I think the genie's out of the bottle. There's new habits, and I do think those new habits are here to stay. People yeah, have moved. People have literally moved. They moved. They're not moving back. Right. And it's almost, it's not like moving back at that point. It's, you have to convince them to relocate for a job that they're able to do where they are. So why would they do, right. why would you do that? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so the thing is, if I'm a company and I say, you have to move here to work here, remember that person could live in XYZ and still work at a hundred other countries, companies where they don't move. So now you have to be so much more interesting than every other company. And at the end of the day, I think talent wins. I think ultimately people are going to make a calculation that the efficiency of being in close proximity is less than the efficiency of having more capable people if they're dispersed, because ultimately every company is in the market for talent. And so that's where I think this goes. Now, there are going to be limits to this. Like, I don't think everything can be purely virtual. We're probably going to overcorrect and be too remote. And then people are going to realize they miss human interaction. So I don't want to say we're just going to live in a world of screens. I'm just saying this three day a week thing is probably not going to be the solution. It's not going to work. So on, a, on an even more fun topic, I, I keep hearing people talk about how they think that this summer is going to be the biggest summer for travel ever, like ever. And I know yeah. that Airbnb is releasing a pretty, rolling out a pretty big update. And I, I'm just curious, tell us about yes. that. Yeah. Well, let me, let me just start by saying, I said that last year would be the travel rebound of the century. And it was, if you kind of look at, we, we, this travel industry lost like 30 years of growth between 2019 2020 and it almost reclaimed all of it in one year so we've never since world war ii seen a rebound like this so it was the biggest rebound since world war ii this year will probably be bigger for two reasons number one last year you did have the delta strain and i mean i can't predict if there's another strain i'll take everything back so like this is pending not another like thing of that magnitude assuming there isn't the second thing is people weren't yet crossing borders freely. Mm -hmm. In cross-border travel, there were 1.2 billion cross-border tourist arrivals before the pandemic. And that got like decimated. That was half our business, by the way, was cross-border travel. And so, and also, you notice how like when, if you stop some habits, when you stop doing them, you don't ever desire them again. Whereas other things, when you stop doing them, the longer you don't do them, the more you desire them. Travel seems to be in the second category. It's not like something that you broke the habit and you don't want to do again. Humans are born travelers. Like we were nomadic before we were living in civilizations. And so I just think there's an urge to travel, an urge to move. And all of our data suggests that this will be bigger than last summer, which was the biggest rebound of the century. So now let's talk about what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, the world has changed. We've talked about that already in this podcast. The way we work has changed. We've talked about that. Where we live has changed. 
And probably most of all, how we travel has changed because travel is kind of the tip of the spear. And what we're noticing is that because people don't have to go back to the office five days a week, they're more flexible. They can travel longer. They can go to more places. But for 25 years, the way we search has been basically the same. You go to any travel website and Airbnb was actually the same. And there's a big box, a search box. And the search box asks you a question, where are you going? So the first problem is presumes you know where you're going. Now, the reason I ask you this question is because most of these travel websites were built for business travel and every business traveler knew where they're going because they had a meeting. But now the vast majority of travel is not business travel. It's leisure or some blending thing where you have some flexibility. And Airbnb is in 100,000 cities. Can you imagine trying to type in 100,000 different locations to pick the right place? You have no idea. So we thought, what if we organized our homes not just by location, but by what makes them unique? And so we've done that. And we've launched the most important thing we've probably ever launched, which is Airbnb categories. So now we've organized 4 million homes by categories. There's 56 categories, like a design category. We have 26, 27,000 homes organized by design. Frankly, I'd write design homes, Lake Corbusier, famous architects. We have tree houses. We have camping category. We have a national parks category. I mean, it's kind of an Arctic category. We have a category of grand pianos where you can just see homes with grand pianos. And the cool thing is we've actually, we've actually um, done a manual review of all 4 million homes. So we use machine learning to categorize them. But then we, a person personally reviewed every single listing to make sure it was properly categorized. We then manually featured the right default photo. So if it says it's like a treehouse, the first photo is of an exterior. So it's very visually like pleasing to look at. And I think this is going to totally change how people use Airbnb. And I think it might have some broad ramifications for how people travel. Because what it really means is travel websites are no longer just booking places. They're now in the business inspiration. You now could come to Airbnb and not know where you want to travel and discover something you would never have known to search for. And I think what it does, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. And I think it's the biggest change to travel search since the advent of the internet, right? There's no, not been a new paradigm in 25 years. And that's only one of three things we're announcing, although it's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. I'll just cover in like 30 seconds the other two. Sure. Split stays is the second thing. Why do we launch this new feature called split stays? Well, half our business, again, are people staying for longer than a week. And we notice that if you stay for longer than a week, then there's two things we notice. Number one, the longer you're looking for a stay, the fewer homes there are, right? If I need a one-night stay, a whole bunch of places have one night available. Fewer places have one month because they might have nights blocked out. So if you need a one month in Hawaii, there's X amount of homes, or we can create a split stay where we can split your trip between two homes. And you can stay in this home in Maui for a week and this home in Maui for three weeks. And we can combine that trip and basically with machine learning, create a custom itinerary and match two homes together. And a lot of people might actually like this too, because it's not just solve. And it, what it does is it provides 40% more homes. So every time you do a search for a week or longer, there's 40% more options because we basically create this itinerary. Additionally, we realize we can use this to inspire you. So if you want to go to a national park, we can now recommend two national parks and you can hop around. So that's the second feature. It's really cool. And the third thing is last year, we launched this new service called Air Cover for Hosts, which is basically top to bottom protection. It's a million dollar protection against damage, a million dollar personal protection. Air Cover just protects hosts in case something goes wrong. And we realized it was so well received. We thought maybe we should launch a guest version of this to protect guests. And we thought, you know, a lot of people haven't traveled much last two years. 
It's kind of like if you are a skier and you haven't skied in five years, you're going to be a little more reticent. If you haven't swam in five years, well, if you haven't traveled in a while, you're going to, you know, so we thought this is the perfect time to do it. And what it provides is the most protection of any travel company in the industry of our kind. It's totally free. So every time you book, we'll guarantee that what you get, what you see is what you get. The host won't cancel um, and a few other protections. And if it's not the way, we're going to make it right or give your money back. And we have a specially trained team to try to take care of all of this for you. So these three things together are the biggest change to Airbnb in a decade. And the last thing I'll say before I let you hand it back to you is this. I don't know if you've noticed this covering tech for a while, but I noticed. You'd think like the bigger a company is, the less the product changes, which is confusing, right? Like once a company's really big, it has like thousands of engineers. It has unlimited resources. Why does it stop changing? But it does. And I'm proud that at our size, we're still changing. We're still evolving. We're not the same app doing endless A-B experiments with a bunch of silos that can't work together. The whole company is integrated and we're taking giant leaps. And I hope this is an evidence of that. Yeah, Brian, that was great. And I think that last thing you just said is, is such a great lesson for, you're right, large companies, they, the risk reward thing kind of gets leaning towards the let's just play it safe. And, and that doesn't, make, doesn't yeah. necessarily make anything better. It just makes it the way it is right now. So It's an inevitable death sentence for a large company. It's a great short-term strategy. But the last thing I'll just say is the, tech, the word technology basically means the word change. And if you're unwilling to change, then you're basically saying you won't be around in the future. And we tend to be around for a long time to come. Well, thank you, Brian, so much. I know that we're out of time. I really appreciate you you sharing all of that. And uh, I, I'm, I personally am excited. Starting today, people can look at the all these new features and start planning their next trip. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian.